Um, we, we're, we're in the middle of a series. We meet every uh, Wednesday night. We have a time of music, of singing, of worship. We open up scripture. We study it because we believe it is our story, and so we want to live inside that story. And then we, we celebrate each uh, week at the end by, by taking communion, by actually participating in that story, and that's, and that's how we do it. So uh, this fall, we started a teaching series where we're going through different passages of scripture and looking at this idea that what are the questions that God asks people? Because God asks people, but he does it for a really different reason, and we've seen that, you know, his question to Adam. Remember that one? Where are you? Uh, how many of you are paying attention? Come on. His question to Jacob, which was, What's your name, right? Question to Job. Oh, yeah. Okay, like two of you were here, not asleep, okay. Yeah, where, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And, and, and so we've been looking at these, these different questions. And so each week we're gonna be doing that for, for this semester. Tonight we're pausing, though. Uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna take a little pause because um, every, for, for the past few years, I have been co-leading a trip to Israel and have made a, a new friendship um, with our Israeli friend and guide, Yonatan. And um, he, he, we found out he was gonna be over here, and so we're like, we, we gotta have him. We gotta have Yonatan here. And so we, this is Yonatan's first time in Colorado, and so what I thought we would do is just, we'll just kind of pause. It'll just kind of be an informal night. And um, I kind of want to ask Yonatan and then my other good friend, Jim Lindsay, who's not too much of a stranger to you guys, just some questions. And I think, I think you'll find it really, really fascinating. So, so before I introduce uh, Yonatan in person, I want you to see uh, him at work. Welcome to the Nature Reserve of Ein Gedi, one of the most special reserves here in Israel, if not perhaps around the world. The reason what that makes it so special is the fact that you have four different types of vegetation from all over the world. From Europe on one hand, from the Middle East, from Iran, and from the African savanna. Hydrologists say that the age of these water that we see here are about 200 years. For the time that the rain falls on the ground, to the time that it absorbs in the aquifer behind me. Until the time that it springs out, it takes about 200 years of the, to this water to come out from the heart of the ground. And what an amazing thing it is to see the power of water where they sort their way down to the next body of water, in this case, the Dead Sea, and how the water changes the terrain and the landscape constantly. Two years ago, the pool that we're just about to go into did not exist. If you wanted to come here, you were standing under this waterfall that we're just about to see now, and it reached up to your ankles. That was the level of the water. Today, it's deeper than my height. And on a hot summer day like this, what could be more amazing than refreshing yourself in these cool water? In this place, probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible happened. The story between King Saul and David who is about to become a king. David is already anointed, but he's not famous yet. David and his men are hiding here in the caves 
where a soul that doesn't know that is going inside the cave. It says to relieve himself and David spares his life. A great example of good leadership. How do we know confidently that this is the place where this thing happened? Simply because in a range of 60 miles, there is no other place where there's constant running water all year long, ever since we know mankind. Plus the fact that you have many caves around here. And the description of the place where the goats, the billy goats, are hiding, this is exactly the same place where it is. As I mentioned, this is this is your first this is your first trip to Colorado, right? Yes, it is. Okay, are the mics on? Are we good? I'll make sure that we're. Is it good. on? Yeah. Good. Okay. Mm -hmm. Can you hear how about that? This one. Is that um, hey, how many? Real quickly, before we get started, how many people here? Because I know some of you have been on trips. How many of you have have been on a trip with Yonatan before? Raise your hand. Wow. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> this is this is your these are your roadies. This is your fan yeah. club here. So. Um, Welcome to Colorado. We are so excited that you're with us and that you're able to spend the night with us. You've done some, you're going to do some hiking tomorrow, kind of taking some Colorado. Yes, I'm really excited for that, looking forward for that. And it's so good to see so many uh, friends, and I can say even a family, uh, here among us. So it's good to be here. Good, thank you. Um, so I want to ask you a couple questions. First, um, I'm Okay, you've been guiding in Israel for how long? How many years? I've been doing it for six years now. For six years. Mm -hmm. How did you get there, though? Like, tell us a little bit about how you grew up, um, your education, your experiences. You're a classically trained musician. I mean, like, just give us a little bit of how you got to be leading and guiding in Israel. One simple word, uh, one simple word I guess this is providence, and I mean it literally providence, because I never thought I'm going to become a tour guide. Um, Originally, originally, like any Israeli, I first uh, went, no, actually before I went to the military, that's what every Israeli does. For four years before that, right after high school, I went to what's called the yeshiva, which is basically uh, Jewish studies college. And uh, of all places, that was actually on the Via Dolorosa in Jerusalem. Little did, little did I know at that time. But that really gave me a lot of... Uh, what's called Jewish education and I guess a lot of knowledge in Judaism to begin with. And then I went to the army. I did three years of uh, military service in uh, an infantry brigade called Golani. Um, and after that, uh, that's around the age of 25, I started my adult life. Well, at first I thought, you know, I'm going to become a musician. Uh, but I guess like in a lot of other parts of the world, to become a musician, that's not an easy job. Plus, you don't make a lot of living out of that. So in parallel, I started teaching. And I started also playing uh, the flute, and I've gone to the music academy, and around the age of 30, I understood that it's really, really not going to be my career, because in Israel, you have so many talented musicians that it's almost mission impossible. Um, and then I sort of like hit the first wall, and I went to teach. So I was a school teacher, school educator, and I taught English, and uh, I was teaching elementary school, then I taught high school. And then around the age of 34, I felt like this is not going to take me too far, at least financially. And then I met a study group, and uh, I had a wonderful mentor and a teacher. And he told me, well, won't you uh, become a tour guide? Okay, I mean, like, how is this tour guide connected to my uh, thing? And he said, like, just do it. I'm going to tell you it's going to be the best thing that has happened to you. And I must say, it is. <laughs> 
He said it's going to be the combination of all, I guess, things that I, uh, I desire and I love anyway. And I must say it is very true because it's a combination of being uh, an educator on one hand, delivering an experience, also somewhat a musician. And all those things really happened in the past six years. Awesome. <laughs> also, now, many of you know Dr. Jim Lindsay. Um, Jim teaches Middle East history at Colorado State University. Um, same thing, g give, give a bit of a snapshot for those who don't know you, how, how you came to be in middle, a professor of Middle East history. <laughs> so how did a preacher's kid from the Midwest become a professor of history at CSU? Uh, well, it starts with being a preacher's kid. Um, the, when I was a kid, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. I'm kind of old. And um, I look around and I see many of my own generation here. That's very nice. Um, the, the characters of the Bible, David, Saul, Solomon, Darius, these characters were real live people in my mind. President Johnson was just the president. He was just the president. These other people were real live characters that mattered. And that always stuck with me. So being raised in a church, being raised around the Bible gave me a connection to that ancient world, and that ancient world is in the Middle East. I was a history major. I was going to be a school teacher. Uh, unlike Yonatan, I couldn't find a job as a school teacher, so I worked for Pepsi-Cola for a few years and loaded route trucks, drove a route truck, and was a member of the Teamsters Union. So, you know, <laughs> our steward was right out of central casting, a great big heavy Italian guy with greasy hair and a big stogie. He would show up to the shop as like, I'm in, I'm in the movies here. Uh, I had a friend who had, uh, was much more advanced in his education than I was after college. He was you know, a professor and he's, he said, you know, you might look into seeing if you can get a scholarship to go to the Hebrew University. They're giving out money to everybody. And this was in the mid 80s and I applied and I got money and I went. And I thought I would go and study ancient Near East, biblical studies, archaeology. Um, took a class in Islamic history because I was in the neighborhood. I should learn something about it. And one thing led to another. And I shifted my area of focus from ancient Near East and Hebrew studies to medieval Islamic studies and Arabic studies. So I stayed there for two years. Then I went to Wisconsin and did my graduate work. Uh, Followed my teacher to Santa Barbara for six years, which was quite nice. Uh, and then in 1996, I needed a real job that would pay a lot of money because kids were in the oven. And, you know, you need to make a living, kid. You know, so I, the, land, the job ended up here, and this is how I got here. So that's the long answer. The short answer is by accident. Because this was not my plan. When I was in college, this was not my plan. I had no idea what I would do. So I kind of use that as advice to my students when they come into my office and say, Dr. Lindsay, what am I going to do? And I say, well, let me tell you, you don't really need to know right now. Um, so <laughs> just keep working. You know, keep plugging along, and then things will work out. Stay faithful. How did, now, how did you connect with Yonatan? Oh. You had a friendship there that you introduced yes. me to. Yes. Uh, in 2013, I was invited by Tel Aviv University to do a workshop for people like me there, and there were 19 of us from around the world. I was the only native-born American there, and we had people from all kinds of different countries. And I had not been to, had been to Israel since 1996, and this, because my kids were little and they were growing up, and I couldn't take the time off. And I got the bug. I said, I need to find a way to take CSU students to Israel. 
And I designed a course when I got back, and I was able to run that the first year in the spring of 2015. And the company that we had worked with, they had assigned us a guide, and they told me this person will be contacting you, et cetera, et cetera. And then not too long before we were supposed to go, they said, well, that guide can't work. We're going to assign you Yonatan Weiss. <laughs> okay. And we arrive at the airport. We meet Yonatan at the airport. He and I had not talked before. And we hit it off like that. And I like to refer to Yonatan as my brother from another mother. There is, it just, we became, it was an instant uh, connection. And I took another year of, the next year I took CSU students and the first trip with Timberline. And then we, I always want to have Yonatan as my guide. So he's staying at our house and uh, uh, he was the best man in our wedding that we performed, that Brent performed for us last year on the boat on the Sea of Galilee uh, in Israel. I think, can you put up picture so. 16? Just since you mentioned that, I'll have him throw that up there. Picture number 16. There's Jim and Laurel after their wedding on the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> yeah, they look really good. <laughs> cool moment, cool moment. Um, I, got, I got lucky. <laughs> <laughs> So here's, here's what I thought would be kind of interesting for us to have a, uh, to hear a little bit about. Um, some of you might have missed it if you came in early, but uh, others of you got uh, a handout. It's just a white piece of paper, like a half sheet. How many of you have it? You have it there? This is a list of the annual Jewish festivals. We find ourselves right now, kind of, and you'll notice that there are, there are three festivals in particular celebrations, right, Yonatan, which are significant, in fact, considered the high holy days. Um, tell them which ones they are, and then a little bit about that. Okay, so actually, it's a little bit confusing because the last day of the third holiday is considered an, a holiday of its own, and I'm going to tell you in a minute about that one. You know, when you come to Judaism, it's pretty uh, detailed and sometimes very complicated. Uh, but let's just say that, uh, yes, basically there are three holidays in a month. The first one is called the New Year's, Rosh Hashanah, which is two days. And then the second one, 10 days after, from the first day of the New Year's, is the day of atonement called Yom Kippur. And then the third one will be the holiday of Sukkot, known in Christianity as Tabernacles. The last of the seven days, the eighth day actually, to be precise, is called Atzeret. And I'll explain that in a minute, but it's sort of like, uh, you can call it a branch or branching out of Sukkot. Now, before even talking about the holidays, uh, understanding the Jewish month of Tishrei, that's the Hebrew month that we're right now in, and where is it really coming from? You know, in the circle uh, of life in Judaism, uh, it goes through many events. Actually, it goes from a week to a week, from a Saturday to a Saturday, and then it extends to a month, and then obviously to a year, and that's basically the circle of life. Jews are being in the image of a moon that every month sort of like renews itself and comes to its peak in the 15th day of the month. Now, interesting enough, the only month of the year they don't really do a ceremony to sanctify the month in the beginning of the month is actually the New Year's, which is very interesting. One of the explanations to that, and if I'm becoming too detailed, you can stop me there because there are a lot of associations. But one of the interesting thing regarding why don't we really sanctify that particular month is because, you know, they say that when people are doing uh, all kind of bad stuff, it's being usually done secretly and at night. And the only one who's able to see that is the moon. 
And the moon itself refuses to testify on the evilness of those people. And therefore, you do, you do not announce on anything. The other thing is that the New Year's is happening when the moon is sort of like covered or it's not even a sliver yet. Is that understood, this kind of image? So that's where it's actually coming from, you may see. The name of this month, which is called Tishrei, is actually coming from the Babylonian or Akkadian language, which is Tishritum. That's like the old, old 3,000 years ago and more, which means literally a beginning. So this is the beginning of the year. But the interesting thing is, is that it basically based on the fact that the story of the creation of the world, and that's what we create. Jews are counting the years throughout the years of creation. So we're right now in the year of five, that based on this faith, this is 5,779 years that the world exists. Very interesting. Of course, it could open a lot of discussions, but that's at least the Jewish, uh, Jewish faith regarding this one. That's where it's coming from. The other name regarding this month is called Eitanim. Now, the original name Eitanim from the days of the Babylonians, it's also, uh, you can call this an agricultural holidays, and these are the months when the rivers used to rise and get higher. So when they get stronger, Eitan means strong, that's the literal meaning. However, there are other explanations for that, because Eitanim is the name of our forefathers, our patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And according to Jewish faith, that's the month when they were all born on the same month. Interesting. The other interesting anecdote about this thing is that the first temple, Solomon's temple, was also established in this month. Okay, it's actually mentioned in the book of Kings. If you read it, the name Eitanim is mentioned over there regarding the temple. So that's another thing which is connected uh, also uh, regarding the New Year's. That the New Year's, which is also the day when Adam was created, the sixth day of creation, that's when this thing is done. Because in Judaism, we believe that on the previous month to this month, that's when the world was created. On the month of Elul, 25 of Elul, that's the first day of creation. Are you with me guys so far? Okay, that's a lot of details. There's going to be a quiz at the end, and just so you know. So get all but that's only those who come to Israel. <laughs> anyway, back to, uh, back to our story. So the sixth day of that one is the first, uh, the, the, the New Year's itself. And that's the day when Adam and Eve were created on that day. Okay, that's where it's coming from. This is also the day that we believe is the day of judgment. In the circle of the year, in the end of every year, basically a man is being judged for his deeds. deeds. So first of all, you prepare yourself for that. In Judaism, there are a lot of preparations for every holiday. So 30 days before that, you already start preparing yourself. Okay, so these are actually, um, you know, there are a lot of festivities. It's the New Year's. You know, there are a lot of family meals. There are a lot of services, of course. We blow, if you guys have ever seen the ram, the shofar, it's also coming from that. It's connected to the covenant of the story of the binding of Isaac. Okay, so that's also coming on that holiday. And of course, there's a lot more to elaborate. But if I would refine everything, I would say that this is the, the time when man is being judged. Okay, 10 days later, this is the day of atonement. So you have also time to, if you may say so, repent and prepare yourself for that day. And on that day, for 25 hours, you fast. Now, in Judaism, you have actually five fasts. But this is a very uh, positive one, you can say. And why is that? Because on that day, we want to be like angels. Angels who do not eat nor drink. It's the same 
like us. And that's why on this day you would wear white. And this day would have five services on that day. And on that day, basically, that's the day of, of atonement. That's what it is. Now, we're coming to the holiday where we're in right now these days, which is called the holiday of Sukkot. It's the most joyful holiday of the year. It's called actually Zman uh, Simchateinu, the time of our joy. That's the meaning of, of this holiday. And what are we so happy about? So the reason why we're so happy are actually many things. First of all, we came out of the day of judgment, the day of atonement, and it's an interesting thing because on that holiday, how do you celebrate this holiday? In fact, you have two things that you have to do on that holiday. One, you got to build something which is called sukkah. Have you ever guys heard or seen that thing before? Not, not a lot. Anyway, sukkah, if I would translate this one, it would literally mean a shack. Now, how come that people would build a shack and go and live in that for seven days? The commandment is to simply go and move yourself from your comfortable house and eat and sleep in that sukkah. And where is it coming from and what is the meaning that stands behind this whole thing? So first of all, it's kind of bringing you out of your comfort zone and just reminding you, you know, that I mean like, what is actually the essence of everything? That on one hand, everything is temporary. And on the other hand, the connection to God, sort of, sort of like, you know, when you don't have a roof over your head, you can say that the connection to the heavens is even stronger in that matter. That's where it's coming from. The other thing which you do on Sukkot, you take four species, um, basically four types of vegetation, and you bind them, combine them together. And these are the ethrog. And does this ring a bell to you guys, this kind of fruit, ethrog? It's sort of a citrus tree. looks kind of like a lemon, but sort of like a different one. That's one thing which you use. The other thing which you use is a palm date branch. But this palm date branch, and I suspect that when you guys, uh, when you guys actually have Easter, and you take those palm Sunday branches, do you guys use those who are actually closed, or does it matter or not matter if they're closed? Or do you know what I mean when I'm saying this? Something well, usually, like you know, the palm dates are when they're sort of like opened. That's already when they're matured. But they're, when they're very young and sort of springing out of the tree, those still look like uh, you know, sort of a stick or a scepter, if you may say so. Okay, so part of the mandatory detailed thing to do is when it's all closed. It does look like a scepter. Okay. The third species, as it's called, is are three branches of myrtle. Am I saying it right? Myrtle? Myrtle? Okay. And the fourth thing is uh, another type of vegetation, which are willows, two branches of willows. Now, there's an image or something that stands behind this thing. And it's interesting because if you read in the book of Proverbs, um, King Solomon says, and I hope I can quote this right in English, that there are three uh, wondrous things, you know, that uh, were wondrous to him and four that he didn't know. And our sages say that the three wondrous things would be the image of Passover. In Passover, you have three things to do, which you should say Passover and you eat matzah. Basically, you could say that the hoist or the unleavened bread is the same kind of matzah. Okay, and the other thing which you also eat is sort of beets root, which is supposed to be very bitter, just like we were enslaved in Egypt and our lives were very bitter. Okay, these are three things. And the four unknown things, according to the sages that King Solomon talks about, are actually the four species that I've been mentioning. You know, the Talmud, that's a much later on commentators, 
which is basically an anthology of 40 generations of sages, explained that very well. So did King Solomon, that was the wisest of all men, did not understand that? Of course he did understand what it is, even though the Bible is very vague about it. Like it says, if you read the actual text, it doesn't say exactly that, you know, um, it says, wow, I wish I knew how to translate this to English, but it says that the kind of fruit, it doesn't say that this is ethrog. Our sages learn it later on. They sort it out. Okay, and the same is with a palm date branch. And the same are the myrtles, and the same will be the willows. But if you take the whole philosophic things that stand behind this thing, it's basically a fruit that has uh, an aroma and a taste. Which one would this be? Let's see if you guys get that. We're talking about the citrus one, okay, the ethrog. It also has a taste and, of course, has an aroma. And this one is the image of a man that has also good deeds, but also has a lot of wisdom, okay? Now, the branch of the palm date is somebody that has a good taste, or we can say a lot of good deeds, but doesn't necessarily hold a lot of knowledge or wisdom, okay? The third species, which are the myrtles, that's something that is very aromatic. If you ever kind of, uh, you know, felt it, I mean, like it really smells great myrtles, but I mean, doesn't have any taste which is actually somebody that has a lot of knowledge maybe, but it doesn't come to the practical thing of good deeds. And the last ones are the willows that has nor taste nor aroma. And this is the image of the whole people of Israel. You cannot do the blessing on those unless you combine them all together. Now listen to this. This is kind of philosophical, but uh, that's the idea maybe that stands behind this whole thing. There are many ideas, of course, but that's just one of them. On the holiday of uh, Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Judgment, and on the holiday of Yom Kippur, we focus more on our spirits, on the spiritual stuff you may see. And deep inside, we do believe that the connection of all Jewish people and the people of the world is something like, you know, it's their spirit, it's their essence, their connection to God, is that we're all created in the image of God. So that is kind of hidden. But on... Sukkot, we kind of take it out that we have many types of people, those who have good deeds and know a lot, those who know, not, uh, let's say, have a lot of good deeds but don't necessarily know a lot, those who know a lot but don't have a lot of good deeds, and those who have neither. And unless you, like, you bind them all together, you cannot do this kind of commandment. So the whole idea is to show the unity of all the people of Israel together. Now, I don't know if you knew that or not, but uh, obviously you know the word Hosanna, right? This is a very famous uh, term in Christianity because that's when the people, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem held palms in their hands, probably the same kind of palms that I'm talking about right now, and said the words of Hosanna. What is the literal meaning of the word Hosanna? Does anybody here know? Have you ever asked yourself that? Save us. That's the literal meaning of that, Hosanna. These are basically two words. Those of you who will come to Israel will learn that a lot of the Christian sites, like Gethsemane, for example, or Capernaum, which in Greek and Latin later on in other languages became one word, in Hebrew are actually two words. And then when you sort of like set them apart, you understand the real meaning where they come from. Okay, so the same is with the word Hosanna. When the people of Jerusalem came out <clears throat> and greeted Jesus, <clears throat> they basically said, oh, save us. And the whole essence of the unity of the people of Israel coming and reading Jesus is probably coming from the same kind of idea that we're doing on the holiday. Okay, so uh, that's maybe another interesting thing. When you come to the Holy Land, you can really, 
I think, grasp and deeply understand, and those who have been already could tell us that, you can really understand the roots of Christianity. I mean, like, I, I really do believe that unless you encounter those places, I mean, like, you won't get the real foundations, the real deep, no, deep notion and the knowledge regarding, uh, regarding your faith. Okay, so that's uh, on a nutshell, uh, let's say, uh, regarding the holidays. And if you want to see a sukkah, you go to Prospect and Shields by the Rite Aid. This is where the Chabad house, the Orthodox rabbi in town, they have a sukkah set up over there. So you can go, go look at one tomorrow. Would you go to image 39, Chris? This is an image, talk about what, when and what you're doing here. This is you, Yonatan. Yeah, that was actually very exciting because we, uh, on our trip, we visited my cousin who leaves right by the Jordanian border. And this was actually very spontaneous because uh, she offered us to go into a synagogue. And that's how we got to know how what synagogues looks like, which in many ways, I must say, it kind of reminds of this hall where we're in, if you guys remember. But there are some customs that uh, are different. So in... In a typical church, you would have the altar. In a Jewish synagogue, you have the ark in front, where in the ark, you have the Torah, okay? Now, every, uh, every Jewish man, at least in Orthodox Jewry, would wear what's called the talit, or the prayer shawl, and that's what I'm wearing right over here. And in this picture, if I remember correctly, I was reciting you one of the weekly portions. I mean, like that week, when we were there, that's what I was doing in the synagogue. And Tom Hoffman read it in English. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, one of the things that, you know, as I think about our experience, and this is one of the um, really fascinating concepts, as we read the Hebrew scriptures, we find that the, the Hebrews are constantly celebrating, like that their year, like you were talking about, is it's this circle, it's this concept of, um, it's, you know, there's annual feasts, there's monthly new moons, there's Sabbath, but there's also occasional ones. There's, if you guys remember the book of Judges, Samson gets married and he has this week-long celebration, right? It's this feast. Um, it's, it's in the midst of one of these celebrations when Hagar's son is weaned and Sarah sees him playing uh, with uh, Abraham and it's this great feast and she's upset. But it's like so integrated into the Hebrew life, Right. Can you, either one of you, can you say a word about how does that function? Because I wonder sometimes if we're impoverished by the fact that we don't have like deeply um, ingrained, interwoven times of remembrance of celebration. Like how does that function communally and how, how does that function individually? Me? Okay. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think how to like how to approach and answer this. It, it's, it's the cardinal question, I guess, but maybe I'll start with the most simple uh, thing. In order to remember your connection with God, in order to, to remember who you are, the essence and the purpose of life, you need those uh, milestones, I will call this, or island in time to sort of reflect. And for example, I didn't say that, but uh, one of the things that we do read we do mention in this very joy, uh, on these very joyful days, we actually read the book of uh, Ecclesiastes. 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 I'm always struggling over here. Kohelet in Hebrew. And, uh, you know, on, uh, when you read this, it seemed like a very depressing book. <laughs> Let's face it. 
vanity of vanities, and like, you know, there's a whole list of things. And then uh, King Solomon, the wisest of all men, tends to like kind of eliminate this whole thing. Like, been there, done that. But it's actually, if you really dig deeper in that book, it's a very, very joyful book. Because if you read the kind of pattern of the words in, uh, in this book, there are a few words that would repeat itself. One of them is men. The other one is actually the word vanity. Okay, and the last word is the word sun, the sun that shines in the sky. Now, when you, in order to understand a lot of those meanings, guys, I mean, I encourage you to, to learn Hebrew. <laughs> but the reason why I encourage you to learn Hebrew, obviously, is because then you really get to understand the deep, deep meaning of all those things. And the word men in Hebrew is the word Adam. That's like Adam. Okay, that's the same, the first man was basically called Adam. And that's where it's coming from. But the other thing is in Hebrew, which is, if you track this, it seemed like a very poor language in terms of the amount of words. There are way less words in Hebrew than in English. But then if you actually go to the roots of every word, it's like a kaleidoscope. You can, it's like a code. And then you can start really, really diverting them into so many different directions that it becomes, I would say, almost numerous. And for example, the root of the word earth, which that's the element that Adam was actually created from, right? It says that God took the earth and created Adam. That's Adama. And you guys can hear the sound of Adam and Adama coming from that one. Now, think about the philosophical thing of Adama. Earth itself, which usually is something that people trample on and just like, you know, don't even pay attention, is something that is basically worthless. You got it all over. But earth has the potential to grow anything out of it. And if you think deeply about it, that's actually the essence of all those things. Like if you talk about the vanity of vanities, and I'll get to that in a minute, it's actually all being starting from the earth. And think about the potential of all of us being created from earth. We could be worthless, but we can be something that would actually touch the heavens. It really depends on how much we do in our lives, practically and spiritually. That's one thing. The other thing is the word vanity. Now, in English, vanity sounds like, you know, you brag or something very insignificant. But in Hebrew, there are two meanings for that word. The word is hevel, which is very interesting because Cain and evil, in Hebrew, you say Cain and hevel. Okay, that's another thing. But hevel is actually also, uh, and I'm not sure I have the English word. It's still my second language, so pardon me. But what do you call the kind of air that you like, you know, on a frosty day, you would kind of, <sighs> it's like this kind of, Steam. steam, I guess. It's almost like a steam. Vapor. One, what's that? A vapor. That a vapor. Comes up I guess that's like yeah. a vapor, literally. Because on one hand, if you're looking at a mist, for example, on, on one hand, it's like, you know, it's over here and then it's gone. And this is the story of our lives. You know, we can work hard all of our lives. We can make wonderful careers. We can be, we can be very, very rich people in mind, in hearts, and in capital. And then we're gone. And what's left? But actually, I mean, like, this thing really reminds you of who you are. And therefore, the reason why you go to a sukkah and being under the sky is sort of to remember your connection with God. When you have a roof on top of your head, when you're sitting in your warm house, you don't always remember God. Right? You think that it's my vanity, like it's my power that made all of this. And obviously, it's not your power that made all of that. But when you go to a sukkah, you do remember that. I, I want to say one anecdote if we still have a little bit of time. I just came from California now. And I stayed in uh, Orange County in Irvine in a, a very nice gentleman's house uh, that belongs to Lincoln Club, very rich person. 
And then I visited some people in Santa Monica, which also live in some mansions over there. And somewhere in between, uh, I was invited to sit in a sukkah, in one of those. And I must say that the most engaging, powerful, awakening part of everything beyond all those palaces that I stayed in was actually staying in that sukkah. So for seven days, you kind of forget all of those and you remember the beginning. You remember the essence of all these things. And the last thing, which I haven't mentioned of the three, is the sun, right? The one who really illuminates our lives in so many ways. And everything that we do is under the sun. Now, under the sun, and King Salman says that there is no advantage of doing things under the sun, but above the sun or over the sun, there is such a thing. And once, you know, again, you're coming out to the sukkah, and you have only branches on top of your head and not an actual rooftop, then you have something which is over the sun. And that's an image of one out of a whole set of holidays that would constantly remind you that. So when you choose to practice that, you're surrounded with all those, all those things that would really remind you your connection with God. If that explains it. Yeah. yeah. We could go on for hours, right? <laughs> it's fascinating. This is what's so fun about um, partnering with Yonatan, as, as Jim and I have here for the past couple of years, is going from location to location and having just different, you know, kind of cultural and historical things opened up like that. Um, we're, we're running short on time. Let, let's just, um, would you put up on the screen there? Uh, number 27. This is a snapshot of one of the places, not just that we're going to go to, but actually we're staying at. Either one of you say, say a word about this, where we are. And... Well, this is at Magdala. It's on the west, eastern coast of the Sea of Galilee. This would be the home of Mary Magdalene. And this is Yonatan's teaching to our first group. And you can see Steve Hoke, he's not angry. He's just thinking very pensively. <laughs> Uh, in the background. Neither um, do I. <laughs> huh? Neither do I. I look very angry here. <laughs> but this is one of the most wonderful first century excavated sites to get an, a sense of what is life like in the time that Jesus was walking on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And one of the nice things about our trip this coming year in March there's, they're building a guest, they have been building a guest house right on this site, and it will be completed by the time that we go, and we will be staying in there. So we'll look out the windows, we'll be overlooking this site. This is the pulpit, or the bima, the, the Torah, where you would place the Torah scroll uh, that was excavated there. And one of my colleagues who uh, works in northern Israel, uh, just last month, her son was able to hold his bar mitzvah in this synagogue, it was really, really quite, quite moving and powerful to show that connection of, to 2,000 years ago. Uh, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I'll just say that uh, if there's any place that you can say in a full confidence that that's a place where Jesus was, meaning we're going to visit a lot of sites where Jesus was. But what's called sacred geography, which is very vague, and a lot of the sites, you know, are based on traditions over here. That's a synagogue, and there were, there were only seven synagogues prior to the destruction of the Jewish temple that has existed. This is one of them. And this, it's one of them on the Sea of Galilee in a range which is very close to Capernaum, the town of Jesus. You could say confidently that this is the place where Jesus really taught and preached. And therefore, the place is extremely powerful. And from the Jewish perspective, as I said before, it's one out of seven synagogues that existed from that time. They're not a lot. 
When we're going to go there, we're going to learn what is the meaning of a synagogue. So that's why this place for me is one of the most, if not the most powerful places that we're going to see in terms of the Christian sites at least. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we have time. Do we have time to talk Jerusalem at all? You talked about even, I wanted, I wanted you to hear his voice. It's so beautiful. It's like, yeah. can you, there's a, a Psalm 137, mm-hmm. is it? This is, talk just a little bit about that real quickly. Yeah, so we'll say really quickly that uh, on Psalms 137, it starts with the words by the river of Babylon uh, that we all know. But one of them says, one of the verses says that if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Do you remember that maybe? In Judaism, the core, the essence, as we call it, the rock of our existence is based upon Jerusalem. Jerusalem is mentioned every day, more than three times a day in different services and different ceremonies. In, on the wedding day, I mean, that's something that's been mentioned. On Passover, we say next year Jerusalem. And I could go on and on and on. But this verse of all verses in, uh, in the Jewish ceremony, wedding ceremony is being mentioned, which is really surprising. Because a moment before a husband gives uh, his vows to his wife, he would actually use this uh, verse. Now, if you try to understand the deeper meaning of this verse, which is part of Psalms written by King David, the verse goes like this. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue stick to my pellets if I won't remember thee. Now, do we have any doctor here by any chance? Not that I'm about to pass out, but... uh. We do? We don't? No doctors? Nurses? (laughs) Okay. What are the... If somebody uh, has... Is losing kind of... His hand gets numbed or withered. And his tongue sticks to his or her pellets. God forbid. What is that symptom? Does anybody know by any chance? That's about a stroke that is about to happen. Now, this is kind of crazy. Because that's what a husband tells his wife. If I forget the old Jerusalem and she stands in front of him... Let my right hand wither. That means if I forget you, Jerusalem, may I have a stroke. (laughs) Okay, that's far out. That's pretty big. But that really means that uh, on your most joyful day, just before you actually establish a house together and basically bind yourself together, you remember Jerusalem. And that's where this thing is coming from. So Jerusalem is cardinal in our faith and obviously in Christianity. The whole story of the Holy Week and crucifixion and resurrection is based on that city. You're talking about the wedding ceremony. Can you explain why a glass is smashed? Have you ever seen that before, that uh, Jews break uh, a cup? Where is it coming from? So this is something post-temple days. We remember Jerusalem, and therefore our joy is incomplete. And just like something is broken, we break it, sort of like to remind ourselves, even on that joyful day, that something is being missed. And then you say Mazel Tov. <laughs> and that's where it's coming from. <laughs> okay. Last thing I want to show. Would you please uh, put up uh, picture number 44? This is something that... Um, anyone, anyone recognize anyone in that picture? Besides Yonatan? <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> we're pretty sure he's going to be shuffling us off pretty soon and not guiding us anymore because these are the kinds of people that he's guiding around here. I, I came here in order to guide you. So, um, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, so this was a uh, recent opportunity that, that he had many times on um, the heads of state. Uh, Yonatan has the opportunity to, to guide them around, and this was um, Prince William. So, but just so you don't think he's a bigger deal than I am, um, 
uh, take a look at this is I've also had some opportunities to <laughs> to guide some people around this this was me shaming him on some of his Twitter feeds you know just saying hey this we were just yucking it up we were just laughing having a good time this was some of the guiding I was doing so anyway just so you know I'm important as well okay I I, I know a lot of people but um, hey would you guys thank uh, Yonatan and Jim for being here this evening Uh, they're going to be back at the table afterwards, so we're, we're, we'll try to kind of move quickly at end. As, as you guys have questions, hang out. Yonatan, you've got some time to hang out and answer some questions. Sure. And, okay, awesome. Thank you guys again so much. Um, one of the things that uh, I was reflecting a lot on even tonight as Yonatan was talking about the whole idea of a festival, of celebration, of marking time is this idea, and one thing that I love about, you know, whether it be Sukkot, it's not just observing something. For instance, in Sukkot, it's actually stepping into, it's, it's sitting under the, the little shack, the home. There's something powerful because when we do that, we're not just observing something, we're like participating. You know what I mean by that? Like entering into, you're reenacting because there's something about saying, that's true of me, that's my story, that's my history and my future. And every week, one of the things that, that we do, it's the most central thing that we do, is we do that, we, we enter into the story. The way we do it is by actually allowing something to enter into us. And that's the bread, and that's the cup. Let me read the words for you from the Apostle Paul. He said, for what I received from the Lord, he's speaking of Jesus, that which I also delivered to you, that, the, that King Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this, enter into it, do this in remembrance of me, And then in the same way, we're told he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, enter into it, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. And then he kind of underscores, this is, this is what all festivals are about. This is what all celebrations are about. This is, this is why we do it repeatedly. He says, for as, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So this is our proclamation about our place in the story and our looking forward. And we'll do this at the garden tomb when we're in Jerusalem, but we do this regularly because we need to remind ourselves of our bigger story and that we've been invited into his. Amen? Amen. All right. Hey, if you, uh, if you have a relationship with Jesus... During this time, I'll ask you to go to one of the different tables around the room if you're comfortable doing so. Take the cup and the bread, and you can take it on your own. We won't take it all together. Take it there, back at your seat. Um, and then we will just engage for just another minute or two of worship, and I'll pray and we'll close. A benediction, a good word, invoking God's blessing, asking for it on us. May the presence of God be known in every step of yours and every thought of yours from this day and forever on in the future.